This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. If you've read anything about climate change during the past 30 years, you've probably come across the work of writer Bill McKibben, author of the classic 1989 The End of Nature, the first book on the greenhouse effect to find a broad popular audience. McKibben is also known for his political activism on behalf of the environment. On this episode, he speaks with Commonweal Associate Editor Griffin Olenek about his latest book, a memoir whose provocative title pretty much says it all. The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon, a graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Griffin. Thanks for being here. Hey, Dominic. So you got to talk with Bill McKibben. I did. As you mentioned in the intro, Bill McKibben is a veteran journalist. He's also probably the best-known climate activist in America. But what's less commonly known is the fact that he's also a practicing Christian. And that's what I was curious to talk to him about. He traces the standard religious story of decline and disaffiliation with which we're all familiar, and he stands it on its head. Christianity, he says, works best not as a mainstream religion, but as a counterculture. The church shouldn't be an institution, but a force that challenges institutions. And I find a lot of hope and freedom in that view. I also see a new kind of opening for religion and specifically for Christianity. It can turn us away from individualism, that force that McKibben sees as the enemy of the common good, and guide us towards community, which will give us the strength and courage we need to tackle economic inequality and climate change. Well, Griffin, this sounds like it's going to be a great conversation. So let's take a listen. Bill McKibben, thanks so much for being here on the Commonweal Podcast. Hey, it's a real pleasure to get to join you guys. So I want to begin by asking you to describe two important moments from your childhood. Both happened in the Boston suburb of Lexington, where you grew up in the year 1971. The first was a protest, the second a referendum. What happened at each of these events and what did they mean for you now? Well, so these are two interesting events, and they really, I really do start out this book recollecting them. They happened about six weeks apart in the spring of 1971. The first one really made an impression on me at the time. I was 10 or 11. Our family had just moved there to Lexington, to the birthplace of American liberty. And because of its historic battle green, where the first fight of the revolution took place, the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, an anti-war movement led by the then young, lanky, charismatic, handsome John Kerry, just <laughs> from Vietnam, wanted to camp on the green. And the town fathers said, no, that was illegal, and they were going to arrest them. And so several hundred townspeople went down to stand with them, veterans there on the green, and they're all arrested and taken off to the town DPW shed for the night. My, my father a mild-mannered business reporter was very uncharacteristically there with them. And it made a, a big impression on me. I think what I thought was that it was representative of the interesting and progressing world that it seemed to me we then inhabited. I mean, part and parcel with the fact that all of a sudden women were being welcomed into the public realm, that we were had extended voting rights to most people at the apex of the civil rights movement, that we just had the first Earth Day and quickly thereafter the Clean Air Act and the EPA. It's not that everything was great. Obviously, there was lots of tension and conflict, but it seemed to me that my 10-year-old brain that that long arc of 
history was moving in the right direction. But that same spring, though I wasn't paying any attention to it at the time and didn't really know about it until I went back to do research for this book, there also was a plan to build the first affordable housing in Lexington, a pretty much lily white suburb of Boston. The town's wonderfully named Suburban Responsibility Commission, after a visit to the town from Dr. King, had gone to work on this project and come up with a place and a plan for 100 units of affordable housing. And all the town fathers this time said yes, and all the ministers in town were in favor of it, and on and on and on. But people petitioned for a referendum, and then in the privacy of the voting booth, the citizens of this theoretically liberal town voted down this plan two to one. And I think, looking back, that marks the other current, the the one towards a more privatized and selfish view of the world, the one that really cared about property values above all. And I think the 1970s was probably the hinge moment at which those two views of the world, a project headed towards a a great society, a beloved community, clashed with the vision of a more privatized world. And by decades end, that second vision, I fear, had won out with the election of Ronald Reagan and the elevation of markets above governments. And I think it's that world we probably still inhabit. Mm-hmm. So the first part of your argument, the first third, called The Flag, looks critically at the history of Lexington and America. It also indicts the racism, structural inequality, and self-deception that undergirds much of suburban life in this country. At a certain point, you write, my life and the life of other people like me was built in very real part on the suffering of others. That's not wokeness. That's not critical race theory. That's history. So could you tell us more about what motivated you to start tugging at the threads of that history? What stories did you learn and and what did they mean for you? Yeah, history is always great interest to me, probably because I grew up in Lexington. My summer job was giving tours of the battle green. I'd put on my tricorn hat and as tourists arrived by the busload, tell them the story of that first fight between the brave Minutemen and the the Redcoats, really the first battle in a sense against colonialism and imperialism on the planet. And it is a great story, and I was happy to tell it. But of course, we've learned a lot about American history in the 50 years since, and and everything is a lot more shadowed now. I was reading Paul Revere's account of his ride out to Lexington to warn them that the British were approaching. And it was the, the account he made 20 years after the fact, and it was the account that Longfellow used to write the famous poem. And I... Just in passing, Revere's describing escaping from British officers on horseback and on and on and on. And he describes this incident and he just in passing says it happened at the place where Mark hung in chains, as if that was just the most obvious reference that everyone would know. I had no idea what he was talking about. I'd never noticed it before in reading that passage. And so did some digging. It was a little hard because there wasn't much written about it. But the story, when it turns out, is tragic. 20 years before the revolution, there was a man named Mark Codman who was a slave in Boston. He had a particularly cruel master who he poisoned in hopes of getting a more lenient master. When they caught him, they didn't charge him with murder. They charged him with treason. And after he'd been drawn and quartered, 
he was hung in a gibbet, an iron cage, and his body left there to rot. The bones stayed hanging there for at least 40 years. So Revere could count on everyone to know precisely this landmark. And uh, when you know that, man, it puts a slightly different spin on what the Sons of Liberty were up to and what Mm -hmm. the noble fight on the green was about and so on and so forth. I don't think it takes away all the power of that story, but I think it produces an extraordinary challenge because, of course, that kind of racism runs through American history up to the present moment, and it certainly ran through these places that became elevators to prosperity for people who were lucky enough to get in at the beginning, that is, white people. Mm-hmm. And you spend a lot of time talking about that, the fact that your parents' house put you on the path to prosperity, that that's something that wasn't available to other people. And by other people, you mean Black people, people not like you. Well, um, in, yeah, in 1970, they bought that house for 30 grand, which would be about 200 grand in today's money. And it sold last year, last time it sold for a million dollars. So that $800,000 appreciation was just the the payoff, the premium for having been in the right place at the right time. But not everybody could afford to be in that right place. So we'd systematically, when Black soldiers came back from the war, they didn't get to use the GI Bill like my dad did. When Social Security was formed in the 30s, it mostly excluded the categories of labor that were Black people were dominant. So it's no wonder that they hadn't accumulated the capital to buy in at the start of that poker game. And and hence, no wonder that the wealth gap has widened between Black and white Americans over the last 50 years. And you talk about Lexington's liberal convictions. That is, most of the townspeople, at least when you were growing up, were liberal. They remain liberal. And they even had certain initiatives meant during the 1970s with busing to sort of address that gap. But can you talk a little bit about how those initiatives fell short? Well, Lexington schools were always its pride and joy. And so during the 60s and 70s and continuing on up to this day, there was a program that bussed a a few dozen kids out from Boston voluntarily to go to school in Lexington. And a well-meaning program, but as many of its graduates have pointed out and written about and made documentaries about, it didn't offer any chance of structural change. Uh, And even for the kids who came out, it was in some ways an attenuated experience because, well, because they weren't really made part of the community that they were spending their days in, but not their nights. So that was as close on those things as Lexington came. And in retrospect, though it didn't really occur to me at the time as a kid, um, pretty, pretty paltry effort, really. Mm-hmm. So you you bring up the concept of reparations in the, the concluding sections of that first third of the book, and you note the visceral reaction that many Americans had to initiatives like the 1619 Project, spearheaded by Nicole Hannah-Jones. But why do you think so many Americans are hostile to the notion of reparations when, as you say, Black families didn't get a chance? They were excluded from accumulating the kind of capital that accrued to your family so easily. Well, for one thing, because it would require some money. (laughs) We don't want to pay taxes to begin with, too many of us. But in a deeper way, I think, because it really forces people to confront the idea that things haven't been fair. Mm -hmm. There's an ingrained sense in much of America that you end up with what you get 
based on what you deserve. And I think we probably know, most of us, that that's not really true in the context of American history. Black people haven't been given the chance to do that, to compete in those same terms. But I think that's painful for people to admit. From my guess is that has, that's what most, most of this furor over critical race theory in the schools is. I don't think anyone really believes that kids can't handle finding out the truth about history. I think that there are people are worried that they'll be made uncomfortable by their kids asking questions that really can't be answered. Mm-hmm. And you do think that there's some part of the American story worth preserving. Could you say a bit about that? The part where you stand up as an underdog to entrenched big bullying power and refuse to be um, pushed around by kings. I mean, this was a, it was a pretty remarkable idea that everybody was equal. And even if we didn't mean it when it came to everybody, we meant it more than it had ever been meant before on the planet. <laughs> and so that's, that's the powerful thing about the American story. And, and the tragic part is we didn't live up to it on our own terms. The good news is we still can. We can make that history better than it otherwise would be by doing what we should have done all along, doing it now. We'll have more of Griffin's conversation with Bill McKibben in a minute. This October 17th, our Commonweal Conversations dinner event in New York is honoring Carrie Robinson of the Leadership Roundtable and Amy Goldman of the GHR Foundation with our Catholic in the Public Square Award. Come join Commonweal's editors and staff, along with hundreds of our writers, friends, readers, and fans. For ticket information, including deeply discounted tickets for readers 30 and under, visit commonwealconversations.org. That's commonwealconversations, all one word, dot org. You were raised Christian. You attended different churches, and it left a real stamp and imprint on you. Could you talk a bit about that? What was Christianity like growing up for you, specifically and personally? Well, so I came out of these mainline, still I'm in, mainline Protestant traditions that in those days comprised most Americans. More than half of Americans belonged to, they were Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, Congregationalist, Episcopalian. That 52% is now about 13%. So these are dwindling traditions. Mm -hmm. But of course, that religious tradition in many ways lost out to the evangelical Christian tradition over the last 50 years. And basically, I think the story is much the same as it was in our political life. These were churches that were, for whatever their flaws, were definitely engaged in this project of building a better society. They were the people who were trying to get affordable housing built in Lexington, who were ministering to the veterans on the green and so on. And they've been replaced to a large extent by an evangelical Christianity that's much more about what's in it for me, one-on-one individualized relationship with one's Lord and personal Savior, as they say. And as in politics, so in religion, I think that that's been a, a sad development in lots of ways, including the fact that it's made it easy for people to ignore the things that Jesus came to talk about, which were clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and caring for the sick and turning the other cheek and giving what money one had to the poor. As radical a doctrine as there's ever been, 
And so I think it's sad that we've surrendered not just the flag, but the cross to the right wing in this country. I think there's enormous power there, even if it's often been misused or blunted. <laughs> and yet you're not depressed about the present state of affairs. So many Christians wring their hands about declining numbers, the increasing lack of sort of institutional clout. But you say, or you argue that that's actually a good thing for, for Christianity to move, as you put it, from an institutional force to a force that challenges institutions. There were benefits to both, and there was something to be said for that world that I grew up in. But we're not going back there, I don't think. And there is something also to be said for the idea that when everyone's in the church, then the church is basically just baptizing the status quo. My sense is that Christianity works better as a counterculture than a culture. And so now it's in the position to be a counterculture again, (laughs) as it was in the first couple of hundred years of its existence, when the texts that we take as sacred were being written. And in your work as an environmental activist, you see Christians, Jews, Muslims, members of different faith traditions working together. But you say that the Christians, they don't need to lead. They can at best support some of the developments that are happening right now. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. 35 years ago, there was no religious environmental movement of any kind. In liberal churches, it was viewed as something you got to after you did poverty and war. In conservative churches, it was viewed as a way station on the road to paganism. But especially in liberal churches, but really across the spectrum, that's begun to change in considerable ways. As people understand what a fundamental question climate change in particular is, it's probably the most effective way to damage the lives of people around the world that we've ever come up with, which is something, (laughs) considering we also came up with colonialism and imperialism and things. But now we're taking away people's ability just to raise their daily bread in the place where they live. So it's been very powerful to watch people enunciate theology of of care for the world that God gave us. And I've enjoyed being, it's always been a kind of side part of the work that I've done. And I've enjoyed doing it and enjoyed watching the people who've made it their main emphasis really Mm. build something powerful over these last years. I want to shift gears, but also continue with the religious theme. And that is the the third and final section of your book titled The Station Wagon, after the primary vehicle that you see in the suburbs, is quite prophetic. Here's, even the book, you're at the height of your denunciatory powers, we might say. And you're really critical of the way that American prosperity, at least as we know it today, has been unevenly apportioned, hoarded, and consumed. Could you tell that story? What changed over the past four decades since you grew up in the suburbs? Well, among other things, they've just gotten richer and richer and richer. It seemed like a modest paradise when I was growing up in it. (laughs) And indeed, we had everything we could have needed, but that didn't stop anyone from more and more and more. Places like Lexington, I mean, when they bought, people bought the house I grew up in last year, they immediately tore it down and built something that looks like a cross between a junior high and a medium security prison. And that's happened all over town and all over creation. The station wagon now seems an innocent small vehicle now that we're all driving semi-military vehicles everywhere we go. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and it's not that that was without consequence. It had enormous consequence, above all in the fact that it produced the largest puff of 
carbon dioxide that the atmosphere has had to absorb. Mm-hmm. The suburbanization of America was even more carbon intensive than the industrialization of China. It's counterintuitive, though, because we think of them as we think of leafy suburbs, we think of green space. But you make a compelling case that they're actually engines of climate change. Yes, our project since World War II, what America spent most of its money on, was the project of building bigger houses farther apart from each other. Once you've built them, you have to heat and cool them, you have to fill them with stuff, and you have to move the distances between them, which really could only be accomplished with an automobile. And hence the the world we live in where poor president has to wander off to Saudi Arabia to suck up to a murderer lest gas prices get too high. Mm-hmm. You say actually the most efficient way to live is to live in cities, to have more people per acre. And you spend a lot of time talking about a, a crucial policy, right, in environmental justice right now, but also in um, American society, which is to, to the abolishment of, of zoning laws that, that prohibit anything but single family dwellings. Could you say a bit more about that movement, why it's so important? Right. Well, the reason that Lexington couldn't have affordable housing was because its zoning laws mandated that everybody have their own driveway and their own yard and their own house attached from the one next to it. And that's by definition expensive, and it's also by definition inefficient. So in order to build diverse communities, we need zoning that allows multifamily housing and allows densification, especially on transit corridors and things like that. And those are precisely the the same things that help with the environmental footprint too. So I, I do think we're starting finally haltingly to realize that this has to happen, but we need to move quickly in these directions, just as we need to move quickly on other parts of this puzzle, because climate change, above all, is a timed test. And if we don't get it right soon, then we will not get it right. So what would you say to to people who are in despair or people who are hopeless about climate change? You sort of invince a sort of hopeful tone throughout the book. You're fiercely critical, but you also say, well, no, there are good things happening. What would you say to people who are who are looking for that kind of inspiration? Well, I, I mean, I don't know always how hopeful I am. I mean, I wrote the first book about climate change 35 years ago now, and it had the cheerful title, The End of Nature. But I am convinced that we can make a big difference by organizing. And so that's what I do. I organize. And so I get to know lots of other people who are working on this. And we built big global movements around climate change at 350.org and elsewhere. And now we're doing this same kind of work, except with, well, with people who grew up when I did. We've started this thing called Third Act, which is organizing people over the age of 60 for action on these issues around climate and around race and inequality. And it's been great fun and people are flooding in to do this work. And so I I don't know whether I'm hopeful because we have to move very quickly, but I know that there's remains room for change. And as long as that's a possibility, then I think it's incumbent upon us to all do what we can. Mm -hmm. Pope Francis, in addition to being uh, more out front on the issue of environmental justice, talks about the concept of intergenerationality. That is that there needs to be collaboration between young people, between the middle aged and between the elderly. Have you come across this in your work? Could could you speak to the concept of intergenerationality? Yeah, I think that you see that. Yeah, I think intergenerational work is really important. You know, I did 
I founded 350.org, which turned into the first global climate campaign. I was in my 40s, but I founded it with seven college students, and that was huge fun. And then one of the things we did was this massive divestment movement, which took root on almost every college campus in much of the world, and certainly all across the country. And the kids who did that, when they got out of college, wanted to keep working, so they formed the Sunrise Movement that brought us the Green New Deal. So young people doing extraordinary work, and that was before the appearance of people like Greta Thunberg and the and the mobilization of tens of millions of junior high and high school students in this fight. There are 10,000 Gretas around the planet, and they have many, many, many millions of followers. Mm. That's all well and good, but I just began to worry that I heard too many people say, well, it's up to their generation to solve these problems. That seems ignoble. Uh, it also seems impractical because for all their intelligence, idealism, engagement, earnestness, the young people do not have the structural power to make the changes that we need. That's where we're trying to get older people engaged too. There's 70 million of us above the age of 60, so a population larger than France. We all vote like crazy. There's no known way to keep old people from voting. And we ended up with most of the money. We've got about 70% of the country's financial assets compared with about 5% for millennials. So if you want to move Washington or Wall Street, and, and I would like to, then it'd be good to have some older people too. But what's fun is when we're collaborating. We've been doing all these protests against the big banks that fund the fossil fuel industry. And I was at one not long ago. They were outside the Chase Bank because they're the single biggest lender. There are lots and lots of young people, high school students. And since they're a little sprier, they were at the front of the march. But in the back was a big cloud of people my age marching under a banner that said fossils against fossil fuels. So I mean, that's the kind of spirit it's going to take and it's good fun to do it across generations mm -hmm. well, Bill McKibben thanks so much for being here on the Commonwealth Podcast hey a real pleasure and thank you for your guys good work Bill McKibben's latest book is The Flag The Cross and The Station Wagon this is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonwealth Podcast the Commonwealth Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonwealth staff, in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>